we have a unique opportunity that we've never had before to move the needle on a whole range of issues really important to entrepreneurship. With each episode of the Make Startups podcast, we explore the stories of founders, investors, philanthropists, and policymakers. This episode features John Deary, president at the Center for American Entrepreneurship and co-author of Where the Jobs Are. We learn about John's evolution from working in the Federal Reserve to CEO of Financial Services Reform to founding the Center for American Entrepreneurship. We discuss the importance for startups in America, the role of government and of capitalism itself, Find out more about the Center for American Entrepreneurship's policy framework and support their critical work by joining Team 500 at StartupsUSA.org. And now, here's your host, Eric Parker. Welcome to the uh, the Make Startups podcast. Today, I have with me John Deary. Uh, John is the head of the Center for American Entrepreneurship. And for those that don't know, I actually personally believe that his work is perhaps the most important work in the field of supporting entrepreneurship today. And and one of the most important things that's happening in our country, I know that sounds lofty, and um, but but the simple fact is uh, entrepreneurship is is key to so much of the, the, the promise of America itself. And the, one of the reasons we have a podcast here called Make Startups is because we believe in that so much. And so, John, uh, I welcome you today. Uh, I'm really looking forward to hearing more about your work and how you created um, the Center for American Entrepreneurship and, um, and really what's been going on in the state of, of our country to support entrepreneurs. Well, it's great to be here. Thank you for the invitation. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I guess first off for me, it, it really, the origin story is always the, the most, the, the most interesting thing, because I, I like to get at the why for, for every business that's out there. And, you know, I, I, I haven't finished your, your book. I, I have to say that uh, logistics are not ideal in, in this world right now, but, but I've read through about half of it. And uh, it's, it's amazing to me how, prescient it is. Um, you know, I think that you, you were writing this at the same time I was going through a lot in my own life with the, the recovery from the 2008 recession and trying to figure out how to create a system that was more resilient. And, and yeah, I'm, I'm just really curious about your journey, um, journey to get there. And, and what were the things that sort of informed you in, you know, leading up to 2008 and then in the immediate aftermath. Sure. Um, it's a, um, it is a good story, uh, not because it's about me, but, but it's because it's about the uh, incredible story of American entrepreneurship and, and how important it is, especially now in the, uh, as we continue to struggle uh, with the economic damage imposed by COVID. Um, so uh, I'm new uh, uh, to innovation and entrepreneurship, comparatively new. I've been at this for um uh, about uh, seven or eight years, all told. Um, but my background is principally uh, in banking and financial policy. I began my career after graduate school at the Federal Reserve Bank of New York. Um, I then went to a uh, financial and economic policy organization. I should say I was at the Fed for almost 10 years. Uh, and then I went to a financial and economic policy organization called the Financial Services Forum, 
which is a, um, a membership organization uh, comprised of the chief executives of the largest financial institutions. I was there from 2000 until 2017 when I left to launch CAE. Uh, for most of that time, I was the policy director at the forum. And I was there before, during, and after the financial crisis. Um, and um, uh, the forum was originally uh, in, in New York City, but then we moved uh, to uh, Washington when Hank Paulson, who was then the chairman and CEO of Goldman Sachs, who was, a, who was our chairman at the, at the forum, uh, when he became chairman, he, uh, he moved the forum down to Washington. So that's how I came to Washington. I had been in New York for 15 years. Um, that move turned out to be highly prescient. Uh, we got down to Washington in uh, late 2005. Uh, by the summer of 2006, Hank had become the Treasury Secretary. Uh, and then 18 months after that, the financial crisis hit. Um, and so I had a ringside seat to uh, the run up to the experience of and then the aftermath, the policy aftermath of the financial crisis. Uh, and got about 20 years of Washington experience packed into about three or four years. Uh, but but it was as we were coming out of the financial crisis, uh, as you might recall, the economy began to grow again after the end of the Great Recession. The Great Recession ended in the spring of 2009, officially. Uh, so by the spring and summer of 2011, the economy had been growing by uh, uh, only about 2%. But it had been, it had been growing for about two years, but very slowly. Uh, and unemployment was still north of 9%. 25 million Americans, uh, two years after the economy began to grow, were still unemployed. And you could feel this sort of collective shrug in Washington, D.C. Uh, on the part of policymakers. They had thrown the kitchen sink uh, at the problem uh, uh, in terms of the Recovery Act, uh, a number of other programs that Congress passed. You, uh, you might recall these funny names, cash for clunkers, cash for caulkers, cash for this, cash for that. Uh, the Federal Reserve, of course, had come in massively and controversially with three rounds of quantitative easings, you know, zero percent interest rates that, you know, they've done everything that they could possibly think of. And yet we were not getting the kind of traction in terms of economic growth and job creation that anybody thought that we would get. And everybody was quite puzzled. Um, and so I went to the CEOs as the policy director and said, you know, we need to do something new and innovative to provide policymakers with some new ideas uh, regarding economic growth and job creation. And they said, great, uh, go do it. <laughs> uh, I had no idea what my angle was going to be, so I started to do my homework on on the nature and sources of economic growth. And I began. I I found uh, some research that was new at the time. Uh, uh, the, the the first papers had been produced in 2009 and 2010. Uh, by economists at the University of Maryland, Census Bureau economists, uh, other academic uh, uh, economists around the country, subsequently picked up and reanalyzed by folks at the Kauffman Foundation that showed the following three uh, remarkably intriguing realities. One, uh, new businesses, uh, and we can talk about what that means, but uh, very quickly, generally speaking, when the folks, when they talk about new businesses, they generally mean younger than five years old. Sometimes folks will, will, will get uh, even more narrow and talk about uh, less than one year old. But, you know, for the sake of argument, young businesses, new and young, uh, less than five years old, 
are disproportionately responsible for innovation in the economy. And that makes sense if you think about it. The, you know, the reason why or one big reason why somebody starts a new business, they have something new. They have a new product, a new service, new twist on an old idea. The economics behind that, as we know from the great work of Robert Solo, uh, who was an American economist who won the Nobel Prize for this insight in 1987, that innovation drives gains in productivity, doing more with less, which is the principal driver of economic growth. So as the, as the disproportionate source of innovation in the economy, new businesses are absolutely key to economic growth. Uh, relatedly, number two, <clears throat> New businesses account for virtually all net new job creation in the economy. Uh, in fact, if you look at all businesses, uh, this is what the research by people like John Haltewanger and other people showed. If, if you divide all the businesses in the economy into two simple categories, those older than five years, those younger than five years, regardless of size or industry sector, just older than five years or younger than five years, those older than five years tend to, on average, shed about a million jobs a year. As they, as they get better at what they do, as they get more efficient, as they incorporate capital and technology. Another way of saying that is were it not for young businesses that add about three million net new jobs a year to the economy, the jobs base in this country would shrink by about a million jobs a year. So yeah, new no, business definitely one of the things that so I'll say that that that's almost become a mantra within our industry of, you know, startups are responsible for all net new job creation. And we say it honestly, even without even really thinking about it anymore. It's like muscle memory. And, and so sometimes I do like to try to to think of ways to challenge that notion to make sure that we stay sharp in, in, in how we how we look at things. But I, I think that the. The critical thing to look at is, um, you know, I, I think capitalism itself seems to rely on this almost a circle of life of companies in the same way that we have with people and, and that we, we seem to have set up a regulatory framework that's wholly around preserving the, the things that are old and established and doing something and um, constraining the ability for us to to have new life come into the, into the system. Right. And part of the reason why that is, is that in our policymaking city, Washington, D.C., those incumbent industries and businesses are very well represented. Uh, and so it's not surprising that the economic and regulatory framework, uh, uh, the architecture of our economy is built, in, is tipped in, in their favor. And that's part of the reason why we started CAE. Right. Um, the, the third intriguing uh, piece of the puzzle that I just wanted to mention, because it's the real head slapper, it, it, or it was for me, is that new businesses or new business formation in this country has been in decline uh, for many years, both in absolute terms. It's been in decline since 2006. And more importantly, uh, the portion of all businesses in the economy that are new or the you know the piece of the of the of the pizza of all businesses in the economy that are new has been in decline for four decades and this is the mirror image of of the dynamic you know the much discussed phenomenon of of, of the economy becoming more and more concentrated um so if you put those three observations together New businesses are disproportionately responsible for innovation in the economy, which is the principal driver of economic growth. New businesses account for most 
net new job creation in the economy and new businesses or new business formation has been in decline for four decades, you don't have to be a policy genius to start asking the question, maybe this is why, despite the Herculean policy efforts you know, going on in Washington, D.C., which have been aimed at incumbent industries, as you just pointed out, are not getting the kind of traction in terms of economic growth and job creation that everybody wants. Uh, I was watching, at the time that I was sort of internalizing all of this, I was watching uh, uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark with, with my son at one point. And you remember the scene when uh, Indiana Jones discovers that the, the bad guys are digging in the wrong place? Yeah. And I'm and I thought to myself, my God, that that's exactly what, what's been going on in Washington. Policymakers are digging in the wrong place because I knew, having been in Washington and worked in Washington at that point for five or six years, startups were not on the radar screen of policymakers in Washington. So I became wildly intrigued by this problem. And I went to all the economists who had been documenting all of this uh, as a first step in my project. And I said, why is this decline happening? Why is this is this four decade decline in new business formation happening? And they said, we don't know. Yeah. Uh, we have certain suspicions and theories, but fundamentally we don't understand it. And I thought to myself, ha. Yeah, I no, so I'm really curious because I, I, I think anyone that's in entrepreneurship really understands this aha moment. Like, I, can you can you put yourself back in that place and just describe what went through your head at that point? Was this was this it happened just like that, or was it this gradual aha? Well, uh, the the real aha happened a little bit later, but but this you know, I mean, as I said, you, you don't have to be a genius to put those three things together with the reality based on my experience that I, I knew that entrepreneurship and startups were, were not on the radar screen in Washington, uh, to be wildly intrigued about, you know, we've got, why is that decline happening? Because if we can get some side, some kind of insight as to why that decline in new business formation is happening, then we might be able to put together a policy agenda uh, designed to address it. Right. So the way that, uh, that I and another colleague decided to go at that. I mean, it took us a while to figure it out because if all of these brilliant economists around the country hadn't figured out, how the hell am I going to figure it out? But the way that we decided to try to get at it was it occurred to us, if you want to know what's going on with entrepreneurs, one good way to figure it out probably would be to get out of Washington, D.C. and go ask them. So that's what we did. We hit the road for three months and we conducted roundtables around uh, the country with entrepreneurs in 12 states around the country. And it was the most transformative experience of my life intellectually. So tell me what cities and you that, that was the aha moment. That was oh. the, I mean, just to answer your question, when I heard from hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of entrepreneurs, what was in their way. And I began to hear the same problems popping up all over the country, talked about in different ways. I mean, often that there was a regional, you know, difference in the way or emphasis in the way that they talked about them. But fundamentally, there, you know, there were six or eight major themes coming out of these roundtables. And I realized that we had learned something, found something that was so important, so consequential, and that nobody in Washington knew that it occurred to me, this is the big idea of my career. This yeah. is the big, th this is the big thing that nobody's focused on. And it completely changed the course of my career. 
I, I, I certainly understand how that happens. I'm really curious because with, um, you know, I've coached probably a hundred startups at this point and, and a big part of that process for everybody, you know, in, in our, you know, industry speak, it's, it's customer discovery and really your round tables to me were, were a customer discovery process in a very true sense of trying to figure out what is the challenge that entrepreneurs face. But I think what's interesting is that, um, how you got to the answer, um, my assumption here is you didn't go in to that saying, I know how to fix the problem for entrepreneurs. You went into this saying entrepreneurship has a problem, right? And you were just there to, to ask those questions because I, what I see is that most entrepreneurs have a real difficult time separating their product from, um, from from that process and so they're they spend so much of their time guiding people as far as you know what answers they do want and I'm curious if there was any keys for you in the process of conducting these roundtables across the country that you think helped you really come around a, a more accurate answer for what the problem was yeah well our job I think was really you know as you say to listen first of all and then as as policy people, because policy making is a craft, uh, like any other profession, um, that is, um, uh, you know, if you go to policy school as I did, you learn how to break down problems into their elements, and then there's a well, how do we address this? How do we formulate a solution to this? And then how to affect it uh, in in Washington or at state and local government. And that's a political science kind of a back, you know, how does the government work? How does public policy work? How, how do ideas and legislation and regulatory changes get enacted? That was our job. One thing that we needed to overcome is we would um, sit down with these, the, the, uh, these entrepreneurs and uh, we learned over the course of our experience doing the roundtables how to ask the questions. So the first, couple of roundtables, we, we were stupid, and we sat down with entrepreneurs and said, what policy issues are in your way? Uh, uh, not thinking that entrepreneurs don't think in terms of, you know, and, and in fact, as soon as we said that, it conveyed, you know, it's sort of the expression, uh, uh, Ronald Reagan's famous expression, you know, the eight most dangerous words in the English language are, I'm from Washington, and I'm here to help. Right. Um, and the response that we got from entrepreneurs is, we have no need for government or Washington in our lives. Quite the contrary, the farther those folks stay away from us, the better. Um, and, and when we heard that a couple of times, we realized we were asking the question the wrong way. And so we started to ask them, tell us about the major challenges and obstacles that you deal with as an entrepreneur. Um, and then we started hearing things that the entrepreneurs didn't realize were policy issues, but we started hearing things like, I can't find enough people that have the skills that I need. That's an yeah. indictment of our education system, but that's the, you know, and particularly with, you know, with regard to STEM skills. Um, um, I, I can't find enough domestic people and I can't augment that gap because I can't keep foreign born talent in the country. They keep uh, running into visa problems. Well, that's an immigration policy issue. Then they would tell us all about access to capital and all the difficulties that they were having with access to capital, which of course is you know a whole range of, of public policy. And then they would talk about how regulatory burden, uncertainty, and complexity was driving them crazy. And a few of them would talk about tax tax problems. That, that, so uh, before long, 
we began, you know, to see these problems in five or six policy categories. And we and we sort of the we then turned it around and thought to ourselves, how do we convey this to policymakers in a way that they're going to understand this? And the way that we, we decided to do that and the way that we've constructed our agenda at CAE is to ask the very simple question, what do entrepreneurs need to thrive? They need great new ideas. They need the talent and the capital to pursue those ideas with as few unnecessary or stupid distractions as possible. It's, it's pretty much that simple. So under the new ideas category, you have things like uh, research and development, tech transfer and commercialization issues. There's a whole bunch of problems and issues associated with, with the way that we uh, commercialize federally funded innovation in this country. And that's a major part of our agenda. Uh, talent is education issues, it's workforce uh, readiness, it's immigration policy, access to capital, all kinds of issues in terms of access to bank capital, angel capital, venture capital, uh, uh, regulatory and tax issues, a whole bunch of issues under those two categories. And so th that's the basic structure of our agenda. Um, and our job is really to, uh, is to take what we hear from entrepreneurs, filter it through our policy expertise, and then and then convey to policymakers, both in terms of educating policymakers about why entrepreneurs and startups are so important to things that policymakers care about, like economic growth, job creation, rising wages, expanding opportunity, to make right. the point that this is the bullseye of what you're trying to do. You need to focus on this part of the economy. Here are the issues. Here's a whole list of potential solutions. That's, it, that's what we do. Yeah, it always seems to me like, and this is what I love about not well, not the thing, but one of the things that I love about doing entrepreneur support work is it seems to be one of the few nonpartisan, bipartisan areas left in our country, right? Um, I, I don't think anybody opposes the idea that I've encountered of of new business creation and and new job creation. Um, however, at the same time, what I see, you know, from my experience and from all the people that I work with. And I, I do think that there are geographical differences. I think that there are certain clusters in America that have set up a support system that seems to work and it allows for this churn of innovation to happen. But what happens in most of the country is you really, as an entrepreneur, have to put everything on the line in an environment that seems completely stacked against your ability to succeed. And that, you know, I look at it and say, we've, we've designed an entire system that we no longer even call education. We call workforce development as if we're training you to go work for whatever big companies are out there, as opposed to think for yourself and have some independence and come up with an idea. And then let's say you survive that system and you, actually say like, oh, I have this problem that I see in the world and I believe I can solve it. This company's not solving it. So I'm going to try to solve it and create a new market. Um, the only way you can get capital to do that is to mortgage your house, to go without health insurance. You know, hopefully you've got a friends and family network that can give you some sort of safety net. And then if you manage to get that company off the ground, as you're saying, the workforce in your community hasn't been educated to a level that you can really grow and thrive. And so you're almost forced to further concentrate activity into one of the few 
innovation hubs that are that are left in the country. And if you fail, you've lost everything. Right. That doesn't seem like a winning scenario for a country. No, no, it's not. And um, and those barriers, two observations about the barriers and risks that you just pointed out, uh, they've gotten worse over time. That's part of our understanding of why uh, business formation rates, entrepreneurship has been in decline. And those risks fall disproportionately on aspects of the population that are historically under uh, represented or more vulnerable. So those risks that entrepreneurship entails, those those barriers or hurdles, if you will, everything from access to capital to healthcare, et cetera, et cetera, are, are especially high for women entrepreneurs. They're especially high for entrepreneurs of color. And so there is a social justice aspect to the difficulties of becoming an entrepreneur that you talk about. Um, uh, but the you know the overall uh, difficulty of being an entrepreneur is very much not in the interest of the country and the nation, uh, and it's especially not in the interest if if the burdens and the risks fall uh, disproportionately on certain sectors of the population. It's not a surprise that entrepreneurship in America today is overwhelmingly white and male, um, and if uh, uh, changing that. And diversifying entrepreneurship is a major aspect of what we do at, at CAE, not just because it's the right thing to do, but if we're going to turn around this four-decade decline in entrepreneurship uh, as the essential pathway back to the kind of economic growth, job creation, opportunity rising, what wages that the American people need and deserve, we need much higher rates of participation in entrepreneurship among uh, uh, women and entrepreneurs of color. Um, and so uh, we have been developing uh, relationships with policymakers in Washington in both the Senate and the House uh, who are who who have that goal as a special interest as addressing the special needs and special burdens and obstacles encountered by uh, uh, women entrepreneurs and entrepreneurs of co of color as we address as we address the full range of of issues facing entrepreneurs in general yeah so you know the I, I look at this and I say that you know what what we fundamentally have developed is a short-sighted way of looking at the economy in, in, in so many ways that, that the, the question I have around that is, and I know this is really big picture, do you think that right now um, is, like I almost look that capitalism itself is failing in some way and at my core, I still very much believe that capitalism is a tremendous part of um, uplifting people in this world through, through innovation, through this churn. Um, and I, I almost wonder if, like in your mind, why are we in America failing at capitalism right now? Because it seems to me that we've been a bastion of it for you know, for as long as I've been taught, you know, in, in my education in school, you know, we, we were sort of the, the centerpiece of, of capitalism in this world. And it, it seems to me that right now we look at it in this such a tremendously short-sighted way. Um, and I know that's a, it's a broad philosophical question. So, well, I think, I think you're right. I think, uh, I think capitalism uh, I mean, all you have to do is is look at the inequality in society. You know, and there are lots of mem uh, 
of measures of that uh, in terms of uh, uh, wealth and income uh, disparities, um, poverty rates, um, uh, uh, you know, I mean, uh, any society, any economic system that produces very wide uh, disparities in well-being, uh, particularly if those disparities are defined in terms of either geography or the color of your skin or your ethnicity, um, uh, it's hard to defend that. Uh, and there's no question that in recent years, these sorts of economic disparities uh, in the United States, you know, you know, that have always been there for sure, uh, but I think that there's a consensus that these disparities have worsened. Um, and you see it, and you see it in our politics. It is, it's not a coincidence that our politics on, on both the right and the left uh, have become much more uh, uh, defined by populism. Uh, populism um, uh, is an expression of the frustration and the anger of tens of millions of Americans on both the right and the left who are sending the signal that the system isn't working for us. Uh, and we want it changed and we want it changed in fundamental ways or or we want the system burned to the ground. Right. Um, and, and so uh, we are at a very dangerous place in our economic and political history. Um, and unless we address some of the issues that are driving these inequalities, it's not just that the economy is in trouble, the country is in trouble. Right. Um, and, and I think I think I think two of the two of the um, very encouraging uh, movements right now that I think are uh, there's a growing consensus around and 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 that is are the beginnings of trying to address that are the shift that you have seen and seen large uh, business groups a lot like the business roundtable endorse a move away from and there's a lot of talk and discussion about this because uh, the 50th anniversary of the very famous essay uh, uh, written by M milton friedman uh, was just in the last uh, couple of weeks about uh, that uh, you, you know C uh, uh, ceos of corporation their only responsibility is shareholder value Right. But this the the shift away from a shareholder value focused capitalism to stakeholder value capitalism, that there are more issues, priorities and values that CEOs need to be concerned about, among them things like equity, access, inclusion, uh, et cetera. And then, of course, this this uh, growing interest that we're a part of and that you're a part of and all the work that you're doing there to focus attention on entrepreneurship and the ability of people who are new, who are insurgents, who threaten, who are threats to uh, upsetting the incumbents, the, the barriers and the risks that they encounter need to be reduced, that that, that is in the interest of society and the economy. Those, those two trends, I think, are very, very positive for addressing um, uh, the, the longstanding problems that characterize American capitalism in 2020. Yeah, well, and I know we are, um, you know, we're, we're having this interview just a few days before an election. It seems like the nation, at least in my lifetime, has never felt more divided. And one of the frustrations that I have in the work that I do right now is I feel, I mean, obviously there's a pandemic, so everybody's thrown off of their, their normal game of how they would operate. But entrepreneurs in my community are at this point where some of them have actually just fully given up on this being a viable path. 
And I asked the question about capitalism because I have some of them that even really actually want to debate me whether, you know, socialism or communism is a better answer. And I, this is what, going back to what I said in the beginning, why I think the work you're doing is perhaps some of the most important work that's happening in this country, because this is the answer in my view of how we move out of, of this, you know, the bifurcation that's happened within the economy, how there's such a tremendous difference between the, the concentrated centers of wealth um, and, and the vast sprawling. I mean, you look at a, a map of the U S and, you know, sadly it's like red and blue is just, it's also an indication of where there's wealth and where there's not wealth. Right. And, and so people are pissed off right now. And, That's right. And, and, uh, and justifiably so. Yeah. And, and so maybe one way to, to ask this question is, you know, what, what do you view as the point of the regulatory framework of government? Well, um, that's a big, broad question, but um, I mean, there are, there are a couple of fundamental purposes of the regulatory framework. One is to provide um, uh, the rules of competition, um, uh, to uh, define the playing field, if you will, and to try to do that in a way um, that is as fair and equitable as possible. I mean, that ideally would include uh, uh, enabling newcomers, entrepreneurs, insurgents, uh, to enter the playing field and to challenge those who are already on it. Because right now you have the newcomers playing on a field designed by the people who've been there forever. <laughs> that's right. That's right. And one of the and what and and just to give you an idea of how that observation translates into a policy option. We, uh, if you go to our website and you look on our policy agenda uh, 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 under the category of regulatory reform. What's one, your website address? Uh, it's startupsusa.org. Um, one of our proposals uh, with regard to regulation uh, is to develop uh, a light touch a regulatory framework for startups in during the critical first five years, uh, that would be that, that would be comprised of only the most essential um, uh, product safety, environmental protection, and worker protection rules. The idea being that um, uh, it's very hard for a startup that wants to challenge IBM, for example, to be dealing with all of the regulatory framework that IBM deals with because because the startup is tiny and doesn't have the 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 size and the resources over which to amortize the cost of all the regulatory burden. So the idea is to create something of a regulatory on ramp, if you will, uh, to provide some uh, uh, some regulatory uh, relief and certainty during the critical first five years, after which. Uh, startups, hopefully, if they survive, will then become subject to the standard uh, regulatory regime. Uh, but that's a perfect example of um, a purpose of the regulatory framework. Uh, the other one, of course, is to is to provide certain protections uh, uh, to cushion the rough edges, if you will, of capitalism and and, and competition with, uh, in a capitalist uh, framework. And those are things like product safety rules, environmental protection, uh, worker protection, uh, so that the the worst aspects of capitalism uh, don't do damage to our, our society and to people uh, 
and workers in the environment. So, so the two principal objectives of regulatory framework is to establish the rules of competition, the, the field of play, and to provide for these you know, you know, sorts of protections to make sure that, that we're a decent society. Right. And, and so I, you know, obviously there's a, there's a constant chant that goes on in society that regulations are killing businesses. Um, and I, I, I would tend to agree that that exists in a certain way, but that our response to how we ease regulations isn't actually doing anything to help new businesses. And, and so first off, um, why should we, um, create a regulatory environment that encourages startups. I mean, I know we've really addressed that to a large degree, but to me, that's the first is, is saying, you know, do we have a moral responsibility to do that? And then if so, um, what do you think, you know, is there one silver bullet or do we, do we really need to touch on all of these areas that you mentioned before with education, with capital, with immigration and so forth? Like what, how can we, how can we get the biggest bang for our buck early on? Well, I do think is I do think it's a moral obligation, and I do think um, you know part of what we are trying our message in Washington is that policymakers need to be need to focus on entrepreneurship and the needs of startups because they are so important to things like economic growth, job creation, expanding opportunity, rising wages. These are the are the metrics of economic well-being. And the and the quality and progressiveness in an economic sense of a society, they come disproportionately from startups. Therefore, policymakers whose job is to pursue policies that enhance uh, uh, conditions and circumstances for the citizenry need to be focused on this aspect of our economy. It is the bullseye of of what they should be focused on. That's our message. So yes, absolutely, there is a moral obligation, in my, in my judgment, uh, for policymakers to focus on this part of the economy. Uh, your second question, no, there is no one silver bullet. And, and, and that's, um, that's uh, the other aspect of our job is to try to simplify these issues in a way for policymakers to under, you know, be able to understand them and be able to address them in ways that are going to have impact without uh, doing uh, uh, unintended damage. Um, and as I said, you know, the way that we have simplified that for them is, is to ask that very simple question, what do entrepreneurs need to thrive? Great new ideas, talent, capital, and relief from regulatory tax burden, complexity, and uncertainty. And then we have all kinds of ideas in each of those categories. And how we pursue those ideas is we, a, a, a very important part of our job is to develop and to cultivate and maintain relationships with uh, key members of Congress, key committees, key staff of the key members and key committees, the people who do the work on the issues that we care about, and to be constantly in touch with engaging where their interests are, uh, which always changes. You know, sometimes they're really interested in access to capital issues. Sometimes they're really interested in regulatory issues. Sometimes they're really interested in uh, in in education reform or immigration reform, and so. We maintain and cultivate those uh, relationships. We have our policy agenda ready, so that when we see opportunities, when, when you know when somebody calls us or you know in a conversation says, "Hey, my boss is interested in doing something on X," we're ready. Uh, so uh, the it uh, the reason why we started CAE is that you know if you're going to pursue any kind of a, of agenda, 
uh, in Washington. You've got to be on the ground. You've got to be on the ground because you've got to be doing the day-to-day -day blocking and tackling of relationship building. Uh, Washington is very much a relationship town. Um, key staff on the Hill have to know who are the people I trust on this particular issue? Who do I know is an honest broker? Who do I know has the discretion that I can bounce an idea off of them? Or who can I go to for a really good possible solution on an issue that my boss is interested in? You've got to have that relationship and have been developing it over time so that uh, they know who to call and they know who they want to work with. And we've been very fortunate in just the three years that we have been around that we've been very successful in establishing that kind of credibility. Um, and, and you know that you're a success in Washington when, you know, the first year it was us calling them and asking them for a meeting. Hey, can we come in and talk to you about entrepreneurship and CAE? And then what starts to happen is they start calling you. Right. You know, hey, we have an idea or my boss would, you know, would like to do something on this issue. You know, we know you guys are, are, are active on this. Would you come in and talk to us about your thoughts and your insights on this issue? Um, and, and that's how it works. So um, I, I guess really then, uh, uh, you know, we sort of talked through your roundtables and that's what led to, I guess, first writing the book, right? And, and your book is Where the Jobs Are, correct? And Yes, yes. It's a little stale at this point, I have to say, because it was written in 2014. I don't want folks to run out. It was really uh, written in the immediate aftermath of the, of the Great Recession. But... Interestingly, in the context of COVID and the damage that COVID is having on the economy and jobs, a lot of the ideas and concepts and even the circumstances of the book are, are fresh again. Uh, but if people really want to see the latest version of our policy ideas, the, the best source at this point is our website. Sure. Yeah, no, I, I guess where I wanted to go, that was because even what I see, obviously now, we're in circumstances that in some ways um, echo what we went through um, in the 2008 to 2010 timeframe. Uh, and, and, you know, we do a lot of work um, at Make Startups around uh, entrepreneur training and education and, um, and, and trying to navigate the regulatory issues around the workforce development system to improve um, that process. And there's so much of what we found in doing that that was actually created right in the aftermath of, of the Great Recession in the 2010 era. There was a lot of thought leadership that was happening at the Department of Labor around the role of entrepreneurship in economic development um, that I, I think was coming about the same time as, as what you were doing. And, and so, whereas... Absolutely. I, I can understand that some of the ideas are, you know, they, they've been around the block. Maybe they caught traction. Maybe they didn't catch traction. Um, but I think it's worth sort of revisiting a lot of those things. Absolutely. Today. Um, and one of the things that I really um, thought was intriguing was the e-court proposal that you had within the book. And I don't know if you... Um, if you want to talk about that at all, or you know, if you think that that's an idea that could have legs, that was the. Um, I, I believe that that's the idea that I was talking about earlier. That um, that if um, uh, new businesses or startups ought to have a uh, special status that um, that gets them access to this this light touch uh, regulatory framework 
yeah. uh, and, and on-ramp uh, to regulatory compliance of the, of the larger and more mature uh, companies. Um, and so we came up with this idea of an e-corp, an entrepreneur's, a startup uh, corporation um, that would be so designated by the, um, by the IRS um, and, and would get both preferential uh, regulatory treatment and also preferential tax treatment during the first five years. On the regulatory side, it's that light touch uh, regulatory framework of which I talked about. And the idea would also be, it wouldn't uh, just be light touch, but it wouldn't change. Uh, uh, one of the things that we've heard from entrepreneurs, things that drives them crazy is regulatory changes or new regulations are constantly you know, coming at them and distracting them from uh, what they're supposed to be focused on. So the idea would be that when a new cohort of new businesses would launch, say in 2020, they would be subject to a light touch framework of regulations that for them would not change for five years. Even if the framework changed for the next cohort, wouldn't change for them. So they would know, here's the framework within which I'm operating and I don't have to worry about it changing for five years. Same thing for taxation. Uh, the uh, similar sorts of problems uh, reported by entrepreneurs. One, uh, you know, very few startups actually have uh, income, uh, taxable income in the first five years. But to the extent that they do, taxes become an access to capital issue. As one entrepreneur told us, you know, every April, the tax man come and take and, and takes a third of my operating capital. You know, yeah, the, no, and, I, when I when I started my first business, um, I went through a calculation after my second year of operation. And um, at that point in time, even as a startup, um, 60 cents on every dollar that the business brought in, either through the corporate tax or through the payroll tax or through um, my income tax, ended up going back to the government in, in that year. And I just, and don't get me wrong, I certainly think, you know, the great thing about paying taxes is it means you're making money. So mm -hmm. that, that was a good thing in a lot of ways, but it really hampered our ability to reinvest back into the company in those early days where we could have established enough of a market presence to, as we've discussed, really create a lot of jobs at that point in time when we were in our early expansion mode. Right. And so our idea, and we we hear that sort of experience a lot at roundtables that we I should also say that we continue to do roundtables with entrepreneurs. Uh, we get out of Washington on about an every four to six week basis and go do a roundtable somewhere around the country. In the 39 months or so that we've been around, uh, we've done 25 roundtables. Uh, it's an important way to stay in touch with entrepreneurs. And we hear that all the time. So, so the tax aspect of our E-Corp idea is, first of all, startups would be exempt from payroll taxes. Uh, and second of all, if you do have taxable income, uh, for the first five years, you're ta you, you'd be subject to a flat 5% income tax. Very low, very predictable, very simple, and it won't change. If, if you make, it, if you make a, you know, a, a, a dollar of income, you pay 5% and you can count on it. Um, and with that kind of predictability and that kind of a very, very low tax rate, the idea is that startups would keep 95% of what they're making virtually all of which goes back into the business and increases the chances that they're going to survive and that we don't want entrepreneurs to be distracted by and wasting time with, with, with income tax uh, complexity and constant changes. They know for five years, here's the regime I'm subject to. 
great. I can build the business around that. Uh, so that's the idea of the E-Corp. Right. Well, so then take me from, you did your roundtables. You wrote a book. Why on earth did you decide to start a nonprofit to, to do this work? Um, uh, well, it, it did not make my wife happy. I can tell you that. Um, but as I was finishing the book, um, and, and what we do in the book is we recount what entrepreneurs all over the country told us, you know, divided into certain categories for some organization in the book. And then we, we made a, a, a first crack at a policy agenda, a 30 point policy agenda based on what entrepreneurs told us. How, As I was so, finishing the book. Wait, how are you funding your ability to do that work? Well, I was doing that while I was at the forum. And um, uh, I wrote the book, you know, it came out of a you know, major project, you know, that started at the forum. Um, I got permission from the forum uh, to do it. So I wrote the book on the side, you know, at night and on the weekends. It, it, was, uh, it was a very tough so experience. Um, but it was published in two at the end of 2013. But when I was finishing that book, it occurred to me, I don't have any organization to hand this book to. There's no organization in Washington as evidence of the, you know, the degree to which entrepreneurship was not on the radar screen in Washington. There's, there was no organization in Washington, D.C. dedicated to working with policymakers to educate them about you know, the realities of what we're talking about, the importance of entrepreneurship, startups, their needs, uh, et cetera. Uh, and then to work on a policy agenda to address those identified needs. There was no organization in Washington, which is astonishing because there is an organization for everything in Washington. Yeah. I mean, I used to live in Alexandria, uh, Virginia, and across the street from our apartment was the Association of Florists, yeah. the American Association of Florists. Florists had representation in Washington, but entrepreneurs did not. Crazy. No, uh, and so... So after thinking about it, for, that we've noticed in 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 our work, and it's um, is the core challenge of entrepreneurship is it's industry agnostic, right? And so every industry vertical that exists under the sun is represented some way. But I, I always try to explain that entrepreneurship is a is a really more of a skills horizontal that crosses into every industry of how do you how do you address market challenges. Um, and design innovations to, to address those and ultimately create jobs from it. Um, and I, I think that what you are doing is helping to, to organize that as an actual recognized industry. And I think that's what's so valuable about your work right now. Yeah, well, our, our observation was, you know, you know, when I when I made the observation, there is no organization in Washington. Well, why is that? Well, it's obvious because entrepreneurs are, are busy as hell trying to survive and building and growing their, their businesses. They have no extra capital lying around or extra time lying around to organize themselves in Washington. But the problem is, if you're, you know, the, the old expression, if you're not at the table, you're on the menu. You know, or at the very least, if you're not being uh, represented in educating policymakers about why you're important, why they should focus on your unique needs, they won't be addressed. And then you get the system that you're talking about that's tipped decidedly in favor of incumbents. So long story short, after talking to a number of people who had helped me with the book, I went and talked to Steve Case. I talked to Bob Lighton. I talked to people all over the country. I decided, well, you know, we need that organization, so I might as well start it. 
So I left the forum. Um, at, by that time, I was the acting CEO of the forum. So wow. I had I had I had become the you know the uh, the leader of one of the most prestigious Wall Street groups in Washington uh, after 16 years there, and and was doing you know very well financially, and had my established perch that I could have spent the rest of my career. Um, and as I said, uh, much to my wife's chagrin, um, I uh, I said I want to leave uh, and I want to start th start this organization. And the reason is going back to your original uh, question about aha, you know the aha moment. I realized, as I said, that that you know the country was then and still is now because of COVID in trouble, but uh, because we're we you know we're, we're growing too slow. We have all these economic disparities, this polarity in terms of in terms of wealth, income, and opportunity. Entrepreneurship is the essential pathway back to the kind of economy that provides the growth, the jobs, the wages, and opportunity that the American people need and deserve. This is, as you said, this is the most important work right now for where the country is. And as a policy person, as soon as I recognized that, I was like, I have to do this. I mean, yeah. this this is the big idea that nobody so has realized. What I, what I kind of want to tell anyone who's listening to, to this podcast is that if you are an entrepreneur, if you are a policymaker, if you're anywhere in the government framework or economic development framework and you understand the value of entrepreneurship, if you are someone who runs an incubator, if you are an investor, um, if you are struggling with immigration issues to bring people into your business, um, sounds to me like we actually got a gamer to, uh, to try to lead the charge in DC because you walked away from quite a lot to, to try to improve the, the framework so that all of these seemingly disparate interests can, can be more successful. Um, because as you said, there's, a, there's, a, there's an entire playing field that's been designed without their representation at it. Yes, and it's very important for your listeners to know that the good news is uh, we have been remarkably successful in just th uh, three years. Part of that is because as you indicated earlier, Entrepreneurship is something that once you explain it to people and you connect the dots for them in their minds, uh, it's a very bipartisan issue. People want to be working on and associated with new business formation, economic growth, job creation, and they're really interested in the problems that entrepreneurs are facing. And so we've had we've had a great uh, response from policymakers on both sides of the aisle to our our message. One of the most concrete examples of that a response is that we were able to establish last year entrepreneurship caucuses in both the Senate and the House. And, and for your uh, uh, folks who are, are unfamiliar with the, uh, the nature and purposes of caucuses, uh, caucuses in Congress are, are best, uh, uh, the best analogy is they're clubs. They're informal associations of members of Congress around a particular topic that, that they're very interested in. And it gives them an opportunity to learn about the topic. It gives them an opportunity to do events, uh, roundtables. And most importantly, it's an automatic uh, constituency of members of Congress for pieces of legislation that might move having to do with, with that area. And there are hundreds and hundreds of caucuses on all kinds of topics in Congress. My favorite examples to make that point are there is a river trade caucus 
And my all-time favorite is there is an unexploded ordinance caucus. But wow. there had never been. I mean, this is the, a vivid example of the extent to which entrepreneurship was not on the radar screen in Washington. There had never been an entrepreneurship caucus in either chamber of Congress until last year when we established them. So yeah. there's now an entrepreneurship caucus in the Senate that is co-chaired by Amy Klobuchar of Minnesota on the Democratic side. Tim Scott of, of South Carolina is the Republican co-chair. That was uh, established in March of last year. There are 17 senators who are part of that caucus. And then in October, the House Entrepreneurship Caucus uh, was established with six co-chairs because the House is bigger. But the point is, people wanted to be part of these caucuses. They were established. And the caucuses are, are an informal but very important part of the policy ma making uh, machinery on the Hill. Uh, and so now that we have a caucus in both chambers of Congress, an audience, a constituency of members of Congress who are really interested in this topic, we have a unique opportunity that we've never had before to move the needle on a whole range of issues really important to entrepreneurship. So um, I think that that's an, a tremendously encouraging thing. And then, of course, you put that against the backdrop of the economic damage associated with COVID. Entrepreneurs and startups are going to lead the post-COVID recovery. Policymakers understand that. Um, and so I think that 2021 is going to be a, a very, very big year for entrepreneurship policy. So to your point and your invitation that, that you just made to your listeners, I would encourage anyone who's interested in entrepreneurship to get involved, follow CAE, support CAE, help us do the good work, the important work on behalf of entrepreneurs. Yeah, and I, I'll tell everyone, um, you have a program that's called Team 500, um, which I have actually also signed up on I'll thank you let everybody know that um, uh, right up front um, but um, can you tell everybody about team 500 it's a very uh, simple idea um, we uh, have invited uh, our hope is to get 500 people uh, to contribute 500 dollars and that's why we call it team 500 uh, we thought that that was um, uh, a reasonable amount to ask a, 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 a relatively doable lift. Um, and I should say that CAE is very small. We're a very small staff. Um, uh, we punch, uh, uh, there's only uh, three of us full time. And then we have a number of, of consultants that serve as force multipliers. Um, and how many policymakers are there in DC that need to be communicated with? 535. Um, but we, uh, we're, we are backed up by a remarkable board of directors and advisory council. Uh, people can see who those folks are if they go to our website. Um, I think it's the best collection of entrepreneurship expertise uh, and experience ever assembled, uh, certainly in Washington. It's people from all over the country uh, who work with entrepreneurs, are entrepreneurs, invest in startups, uh, a couple of academics who work uh, on entrepreneurship. Um, we, uh, as I said, have been e enormously effective in Washington, in part be you know, because of the receptivity to our message, but we're also very good at what we do. Um, and um, so Team 500 is is an invitation for 500 people to give us, uh, contribute $500. It's tax deductible, of course. Um, we operate on a shoestring budget. Um, and so if 500 people uh, contributed $500, that's $250,000. That's almost half of our annual budget. Uh, so it's a real retail way for people to uh, get involved in the work of CE. Obviously, if people wanted to contribute something more than $500, it's very easy to do. Just go to our website and 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 click on the donate button. 
but we thought that the Team 500 invitation w- would be a, a reasonable and um, attractive option for people to uh, get involved. Just to be clear, if someone is is struggling right now and $500 is too much, can they contribute whatever amount they want? Of course they can. That They can uh, contribute anything that they want at the donate button on our website. So the um, I think I met you around two years ago for I, I took part in one of the Kauffman Foundation's policy days on the Hill. Right. And um, and in that, I think you did a, a really great job of talking to us about kind of a few things. One is how we can how we can better engage policymakers um, in the work that we do. And, and really, I learned a lot on that trip about that they actually do care, which was <laughs> intriguing. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then also, I think one of the things that really stuck with me was understanding that there's been, there's been great success of getting policymakers to champion small business in America but they still don't seem to understand new business. And mm-hmm. I know we've talked a lot about the definition of a new business being, you know, generally speaking, less than five years old, even if there might be some disagreement about that. Um, how much traction do you think there's been in developing that consensus understanding in Washington at this point? Um, there has been, we've made a, a lot of progress. Um, and as you can imagine, that was the, um, uh, the substance of uh, of most of our work in the early months after we launched uh, CAE, we m- my colleagues and I, uh, you know, essentially lived in the congressional office buildings, doing hundreds of meetings uh, with key uh, members of Congress and their staff. And one of the, you know, the very first things tasks that we had to do was explain to them the difference between. Uh, existing small businesses, which they're very familiar with and are very well represented in Washington, by the way, um, and new businesses. Um, And um, most policymakers at the time, and even a lot of them uh, today, uh, when they think of entrepreneurship, they lump new and small businesses in together. Um, And it's our view, based on the economics and the research associated with startups, um, that they need to be thought of as different. Similar, certainly, there's a lot of overlap in terms of issues and challenges, but there are key differences. Um, uh, In terms of the economic role, uh, it is new businesses, uh, the research shows, that are disproportionately responsible for innovations in the economy. As we talked about earlier, people start new businesses because they have something new. The, the importance of that is that that innovation is the driving force of gains in productivity, which drives economic growth and job creation. Um, so the the economic role of new businesses and small businesses is different. Moreover, uh, new businesses are very fragile. Um, I like to think of them as toddlers. They, they have enormous p- uh, potential, but are easily knocked off their feet. Problems and challenges that can be a pain in the neck for small businesses can be fatal uh, for new businesses. So both from the standpoint of their economic role, uh, their contribution uh, to the economy and the things that we're focused on, uh, economic growth, job creation opportunity, uh, and because of their fragility, it's important to think of new businesses differently. They have different policy needs 
than existing small businesses. Um, and uh, it's been you know, a major task for us to educate policymakers about that reality, to get them to think about them in different ways. Um, um, and there's you know, some resistance, frankly, because small business is a very powerful lobby in Washington. It's very politically and intuitively appealing. Um, and we have encountered some uh, resistance on the part of some policymakers they feel that you know to be focused on or acknowledging the importance of new businesses is somehow to turn away from you know the needs or the importance of small business and we don't see it that way at all both are enormously important uh, to the economy and to our society but their needs are different and it's important to understand the differences yeah well i always think of um you know New business is basically just the the process of bringing more people into the fraternity of of business ownership, right? And um, some of them are going to be small, some of them are going to be big, but there is something that's distinct about being new, right? One of the things that I've found in in the world of supporting startups is there seems to be a great value that's placed on high growth, high tech, innovative companies. And there seems to be less acknowledgement and understanding of, I would say more broadly, um, inclusion related entrepreneurship of, of how, um, you know, we often talk that there's, you know, we've, we've supported a hundred businesses that have created over a thousand jobs. Um, but what that also tells you is that, you know, the average company size is 10 employees or less. It's not like this, this is the creation of, of a company that creates a thousand jobs. And that seems to be mostly what economic developers and policymakers that I talk to want to hear. They want to, they want the story of the, the 500 person, the thousand person company. And, um, you know, do you see a distinction in the levels of support around those two types? Um, well, I, I think you're right that there's um, uh, there is probably somewhat more interest uh, uh, among policymakers in 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 the high potential, high uh, impact is uh, the way that it's it's often referred to technology based startups. It's sexy um, uh, uh, to the extent that uh, uh, a new business of that sort. Um, does grow very fast uh, from the standpoint of revenue and job creation. Uh, it has an outsized impact, um, and uh, you know, policymakers. It's you know, it's, it's very important to put yourself in their shoes. Um, uh, they are elected officials, and they want to go back to their districts and their states with great stories. Um, and um, new businesses that grow very fast and create a lot of jobs and a lot of money, um, and that make a major impact in their state or district is a great story. Uh, uh, to tell, especially if they had something to do with that. Um, so, you know, you know, there's a natural, just by the nature of, of the game, right. there is a natural focus on those types of businesses. But generally speaking, I think that there's also, in the minds of many policymakers, a real affinity for the small business, the small, you, you know, the startup that that is uh, is going to remain small. It's going to be a 10 to, uh, you know, 15 or five person operation. Um there's there Let's is clear, an, in America, the definition of small business is less than 500 employees, right? Well, right, right. And that's very big, obviously. Um, and, and you you very often hear small business association or small business 
uh, small Business Administration, I should say, or Small Business Trade Associations, uh, uh, making the point that 99% of the businesses in the U.S. economy are small businesses, and the and the and the definition that they use is is less than 500. It's also true, though, that about 80 to 85 percent of the businesses in the U.S. economy have fewer than 20 employees. So, I mean, I think that that's a more uh, revealing figure because, you know, the U.S. economy, you, you know, is the mightiest economy in the world. We tend to think of the U.S. economy in terms of the great, you know, corporations uh, that, that have been launched and that thrive here in the United States, and that's very important. But it's remarkable that 85% of the businesses in the United States have fewer than 20 employees. The U.S. economy is a small business economy. Um, um, and, um, you know, of course, all those uh, businesses at some point, uh, both the small businesses and the major corporations, uh, began as startups. Um, and so um, we want more of those, uh, in, you know, from a, a, a national or, or economic standpoint. It's in the interest of everybody that there is a thriving pipeline of new entrants, you know, from the standpoint of innovation and new products and new services and new ideas and dynamism. Um, it's in everybody's interest uh, for that to be that priority to be attended to and cultivated as as carefully and as effectively as possible. Right. Well, and I think that's one of the things that I I really look at is that you know, and this this might get to um, some some conversations that might get me in in trouble in in certain circles. But you know, I look at so much of what the the U.S. policymaking and, and administrative issues. Um, like how how they go about um, encouraging activity and granting money or providing support systems. So you know at the at the EDA level, um, you know the U.S. Economic Development Administration level, it seems to be entirely centered around: Are you doing high growth, high impact um, technology innovation related businesses? And so there's not a lot of support available for. Um, I go back to the the mass amount of geography of America that doesn't have the the perfect cluster of research institutes and investor networks to accelerate these high growth companies. So it's too risky, uh, you know, using my case in Augusta, Georgia, it's too risky to try to start a high growth, high tech business there. It's so much easier to just pack your bags and move to New York, Chicago, Boston, Austin, San Francisco than it is to be in this community and do that. But then on the flip side, you look at the SBDC and the um, SBA programs and for all the work that they do, I think that most people in the startup space feel like they aren't served really in any capacity because they're still built primarily around traditional lending operations, which require levels of um, existing assets that you can leverage. And so I, I still don't see any traction really around supporting broad-based entrepreneurship in this sort of, I don't care what business you're creating, just, just create a business. It seems to be almost entirely focused around this innovation sector. Yes, and so, so much of what the federal government does from the standpoint of economic development is focused on existing uh, uh, businesses. And I can't remember the specific problem that, you know, you know, when we met a couple of years ago, you brought an issue to us. I can't remember the details, but I do remember um, that 
part of the problem was that the uh, qualify the, the qualifying criteria to get the assistance that the, the the government program was supposed to deliver, those criteria were uh, uh, defined decidedly in the context of existing small businesses and not with any kind of understanding uh, about, uh, about, uh, about startups and the limitations of startups by their very nature in having some of the qualifying criteria that were necessary to access the uh, the governmental assistance and there's you know a myriad examples of that through all kinds of programs in the federal government and and that is part of the challenge for us there's so much work to be done in terms of educating it's not just congress it's it's the executive branch agencies you know the small business administration the eda the commerce department et cetera et cetera about the unique nature, importance, and needs, unique needs of startups that most government programs are completely unaware of and therefore are not designed uh, to address and provide the kind of assistance that is available for existing small businesses to new businesses. That, that's part of our job is to change that. Um, it's a very big federal government. <laughs> It's going to take lots of time and lots of effort, but that's the uh, the reason why that effort that you were working on uh, was so important and is a perfect example. Yeah, and I, I think you know to indulge a little bit, but I think it, it's a way of of helping people understand also how they can uh, approach the Center for American Entrepreneurship and, and engage you is going through you know our issue specifically. We've been looking um, at. Um, entrepreneurship training and that specifically there's an existing piece of legislation called the Workforce Innovation Opportunity Act mm -hmm. and in seven different places within the legislation it's already written that it is designed to support entrepreneurial skills training and micro enterprise services at the at the federal level but with it being administered through the Department of Labor um, there's a number of um, administrative requirements that entrepreneurship training can't meet which is one you have to have an industry recognized credential. And we just acknowledge there's no entrepreneurship industry vertical to do that. So well, the thing that Make Startups did is we created that vertical by getting the banking sector to, to come together and say they would recognize a training certificate um, in this field. But then the second part of it is the only way to maintain funding for a program is that 80% of the people that graduated have to have a job four months after they complete a program when we all know that entrepreneurs at that point in time, they're investing every penny they make into their business and leveraging debt to, you know, get even more capital to go into their business. Right. So yeah, it's uh, sadly legislation is just the, the first step <laughs> along yes. the way. It's a big, it's a big federal government to change. In fact, one, uh, project that I'll let your uh, listeners, uh, uh, know about that we're, doing right now and is um, is based on the work of an academic at George Washington named Andrew uh, Reamer, uh, who is doing the work for us, is, is we are inventorying all of the federal programs across the federal uh, government that are designed or intended, perhaps not uh, intelligently so, but but whose intention is to assist and provide assistance for entrepreneurship and startups. So if you're if, if you're trying to change uh, this uh, reality that you're talking about, 
and trying to educate you know regulatory and executive branch agencies. There's my cat um, about um, about the importance of startups and to and to begin to include uh, within administrative criteria startups. You have to have a baseline understanding of what's currently out there, um, and so we will be rolling out a user-friendly resource that will be on our website that will be that will present all of the various programs of the federal government that that are designed intended uh, to provide assistance to entrepreneurs and startups and that'll be a great place for entrepreneurs to go to to, to you, you know just educate themselves about the programs and assistance that's out there and then also uh, to begin identifying the problems with those programs that need to be changed to make them more responsive and more impactful regarding the needs of entrepreneurs and, and startups. I'll keep you posted on when that uh, uh, program is finished and, or, and, and ready to be rolled out. Awesome, yeah. So then, you know, one of the things that, that I, I, I did encounter, um, you know, you were gracious enough to help me set up a number of meetings across the Capitol um, in the early days of trying to figure out our way around this workforce issue. Um, I sense that there was a slight difference, even though it's a bipartisan issue, but I'm wondering if you see fundamental differences in how the Democratic and Republican policymakers approach entrepreneurship and and what are the best ways to engage each of them? Um, I think the way that I, I, I think there's an equivalent interest um, in uh, in the in the general topic of entrepreneurship and startups. Um, there's certainly a desire uh, on the part of of elected officials to be seen uh, as working on behalf of entrepreneurs. It's a great story to go home to your district and state with, right? Um, I think where we see differences is in the particular aspects or which problems pertaining to entrepreneurship policymakers are most interested in. So I'll give you a perfect example. Uh, uh, Republicans are more interested, generally speaking, in addressing uh, regulatory burden, complexity, and uncertainty than Democrats. It's not to say that Democrats are not interested, but I think that there is a difference. I'll give you a more vivid example. Um, Democrats are much more interested in addressing uh, immigration reform, which is a major issue for entrepreneurs, uh, than Republicans, certainly under the current administration. So there are differences in our broad policy agenda all the ideas that we have under those categories I described of new ideas, talent, capital, uh, regulation, and taxes, there are differences, there are partisan differences in the level of interest and willingness to work with us on specific policy ideas. Um, I'll give you a, a perfect example of that uh, in terms of a piece of legislation. We have worked very, very hard over the last year uh, with Amy Klobuchar, who is the is the Democratic co-chair of the Senate Entrepreneurship Caucus on a bill called the uh, the New Business Preservation Act. And this bill is intended to address the extreme concentration of venture capital in this country. 75 or 80 percent of venture capital is in three cities, Silicon Valley, uh, New York City and Boston, uh, with the remaining 47 states and even large aspects of those three states left to share the remaining 15%. Now, venture capital is not a silver bullet. It's not the end-all be-all, but it's a very important uh, uh, resource uh, for entrepreneurships and startups. And, and 
and innovation and entrepreneurship-led local economic development. So, so the question is, is it a, a reasonable uh, responsibility of government to do something about trying to diversify geographically uh, that resource of venture capital? And, and uh, uh, Amy Klobuchar and we were of the view, yes, that that is a legitimate role for government not to direct or mandate or set rules that you have to invest here or there, but to provide a, a framework that might incentivize uh, venture capitalists to look outside of those three major venture capital centers at promising startups. So we uh, uh, spent a lot, almost an entire year uh, working with her staff on this bill called uh, the New Business Preservation Act. And, and what it would do is it would, it would uh, offer a one-to-one -one match for every private uh, venture capital dollar invested in a promising startup in a place like where you're sitting would be eligible for a federal dollar of investment. All the investment decisions are made by private investors. It's not the government uh, picking the winners and losers, but it is that the government stepping in and providing circumstances that uh, create a very favorable investing uh, climate for uh, for venture capitalists who are willing uh, to get on planes and fly to the heartland states and look at promising companies. A one-to-one -one match would drop the hurdle rate uh, for return in half. It would ramp up the aperture of potential return um, and would, as I say, uh, would create uh, very favorable circumstances for investors. That bill was introduced in March in both the House and the Senate. So it is bicameral, but at the moment it's it's Democrat sponsors only. We, we have not been able to uh, get a Republican to co-sponsor that bill, in part because you know it entails an appropriation of several billion dollars to finance the program. Uh, and at least at the time that we were, you know, late last year, as we began trying to find a Republican sponsor, you know, anything that costs money, uh, Republicans are. Um, yeah, uh, are generally speaking, they're uh, they're willing to spend money some places, but not in all places. We're hopeful now that in light of the damage uh, to the economy uh, uh, imposed by COVID, and with all of the other uh, large amounts of dollars that you know justifiably has been have been deployed uh, to respond uh, uh, to the COVID crisis, we're very hopeful that this bill will move, uh, particularly depending on the outcome of the election in early. Uh, 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 next year, and that uh, because we see uh, 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 startups and entrepreneurship as being a key part of the economic recovery from COVID, and so and so policies like the New Business Preservation Act, and another one is the Endless Frontier Act. Uh, there's another one uh, called the Ignite American Innovation Act that would change the tax code uh, to allow startups to monetize some of the tax assets that are trapped on their balance sheets, their net, uh, their NROLs, the, uh, the net operating losses and, and, and research and development uh, credits that startups can't avail themselves of because they don't have an income tax liability. Um, there's a, a number of these types of pieces of legislation that are designed to address the specific and unique needs of startups yeah. that are moving in part because of the work that CAE has been doing in Washington and the creation of the of the caucuses in both uh, chambers of Congress that we are very confident are going to move the beginning part of next year. Well, I, I have to say, so it, it, it's interesting to me in my time, you know, touring around the Capitol and, and meeting with 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 people that um, and I think that the other thing that gives me hope is that the work you do 
has that potential to to heal some of the partisan divide that exists between everybody because it can become a rallying point. One of the things that I found was that I would take meetings with um, with people about workforce policy on both sides of the aisle. Um, both sides of the aisle would completely support what we were trying to accomplish, but then tell me that the other side would never support it and right. tell me all the reasons why. And I would explain to them, well, actually, so-and-so does support it. I can put you in touch with, with them. Right. And, and I think that, that that accomplished a lot. I, in all sincerity, this is just um, you know, sharing between colleagues. I, you know, one of the things that, um, that I've encountered a lot is on the Republican side, there's a lot of interest in trying to see, you know, I think the opportunity zones were a, a monumental uh, achievement uh, of trying to figure out a, a new way to drive investment into certain markets. But at the same time, there's been a, there's been a hiccup that they seem to primarily be centered around the real estate deals in these markets, as opposed to the startups that are in these markets. Um, and Every time I'm on Capitol Hill, I'm asked, how are Opportunity Zones working? Um, it sounds to me like um, there's this opportunity to heal a divide with, you know, Senator Klobuchar's um, bill and, and maybe seeing how that can marry up within the Opportunity Zone areas so that it further reinforces that legislation for whatever that's. <laughs> No, no, I know we uh, it's you're you're exactly right. And we see and we talk about we lobby uh, members of Congress on the New Business Preservation Act, making the point that it is thematically consistent uh, and is very similar to opportunity zones. Opportunity zones are designed to get capital into distressed areas or, or underserved areas by way of a tax incentive. The New Business Preservation Act is designed uh, to get venture capital into startups in underserved areas of the country by way of this one-to-one -one match idea. So the, so the intention of the two pieces of legislation is the same, uh, to get capital into underserved areas and to drive economic development. They're just uh, coming at the problem in a different way that we actually see as being complementary. So, so we very much see uh, the New Business Preservation Act as being a counterpart to opportunity zones. We also see it being a counterpart to a piece of legislation that was introduced in um, in May uh, by Senator Schumer on the Democratic side and Senator Todd Young on the Republican side called the Endless Frontier Act. What the Endless Frontier Act would, would do is it would it would augment significantly the nation's commitment to research and development, and it would also establish about a dozen innovation centers focused on different aspects of innovation around the country. So again, it's it is designed to get innovation out into the heartland and to be contributing to e uh, economic development around the country uh, by way of government investment in innovation. But of course, the way that that innovation gets out into the economy is by way of new business formation, entrepreneurship. So we see the New Business Preservation Act as being a great counterpart to the Endless Frontier Act. So it's our hope that these two pieces of legislation, and then of course the uh, uh, the Ignite American uh, Innovation Act is a tax-based uh, act that I described a moment ago. We're very hopeful that you know, given the importance of entrepreneurship and startups to the post-COVID recovery, uh, that these bills are going to move uh, in the first part of next year. I I really think that twenty twenty one is going to be a major year for entrepreneurship policy. So for for. Everyone out there that agrees in the value and importance of entrepreneurship, um, 
how can they learn more about the Center for American Entrepreneurship and how can they um, engage you if they have an issue? Sure. Um, well, we very much encourage contact because uh, uh, we rely on it, on the input and the ideas of people who get in touch with us. As I say, uh, we go out of our way to get out of Washington on a regular basis and conduct roundtables around the United States, but we love it when people get in touch with us uh, proactively. Uh, it's very easy to learn more and to follow CAE. Our website is, um, we just actually overhauled our website, so we think we have a terrific uh, uh, very informative and uh, uh, in an interactive uh, website um, uh, that has our whole policy agenda, our leadership, our activities. Uh, we're also, you know, we're in the idea business. And so we write a lot. Uh, we do lots of op-eds, lots of blog postings, uh, lots of research re reports. We are a research policy and advocacy organization. And those are really, th you know, the legs, uh, three legs of the same stool, all reinforcing of each other. Our research informs our policy agenda. Our policy agenda determines our advocacy. And what we hear back from policymakers in terms of our interests, their interests, in turn, uh, 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 determines our research agenda, our policy agenda, et cetera. And, and so it uh, all works together. Uh, but our, our website is, is a great uh, resource of information. We're active on social uh, media. Uh, our Twitter handle is the same as our, 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 uh, our web address. Our web address is startupsusa.org. Uh, our Twitter handle is just uh, without the dot. It's startupsusa.org. Uh, We're on LinkedIn. We're on Facebook. Uh, follow us. Um, and if um, if people would like to get in touch uh, directly, my email is john at startupsusa.org. Uh, I encourage anyone to reach out with problems, input, uh, insights. Um, um, and uh, and if people are interested in hosting a roundtable, uh, we are continuing to do roundtables virtually, but by way of Zoom. In fact, we've done four. Even uh, easier, since, right? Sorry? It's even easier now, right? It's it's easier. You don't get quite the interaction, you know. Um, I mean, we love to get out of Washington and and go to a different part of the country, and re, and you know, we tend to partner with incubators or accelerators or you know, some sort of an entrepreneurship facility that puts fifteen or twenty entrepreneurs around a table, um, and we do a two-hour roundtable. It's always great fun to meet people and hear about their businesses and their challenges. But yes, we're uh, it. it uh, yeah, I'd say we get. 95% of the value of an in-person roundtable by way of Zoom, certainly all the information in terms of challenges and problems and ideas for fixing those challenges and problems uh, uh, we're able to get. So if anyone is interested in hosting us, we would love to do a roundtable uh, uh, with entrepreneurs in their area. That's wonderful. And then, um, you know, obviously, uh, hopefully our listeners will, uh, will sign up on Team 500. Um, that would be great. How else can they help you in your work? Um, I think, uh, you know, if they're uh, help spread the word about CAE and the work that we're doing, I will I will tell you that uh, because of COVID, uh, and I don't think that this will, will surprise anyone, but it has made our funding circumstances, along with every other nonprofits funding circumstances, very, very challenging. And the reason is quite simple. We rely on our, our funding comes from foundations, uh, corporations and individuals. Um, and COVID has made uh, the uh, giving or philanthropic activities of all three of those categories more difficult and more challenging. Foundations are pulling back uh, uh, because they're concerned that grantees will not be able to perform on their grants in the context of COVID. You can't get together with people, can't do things. Um, 
corporations are under financial stress um, and so have begun to cut back their uh, philanthropic activities or become a lot more selective. Um, and then, of course, individuals. I mean, you know, uh, there's a lot more uncertainty out there. A lot of people have lost their jobs, uh, even folks who still have their jobs. There's a lot of uncertainty. So our funding circumstances have become uh, that were already sort of, you know, were challenging, uh, have become much more challenging. Um, and so uh, a great way that people can help us is if you're interested in CA, if you're interested in entrepreneurship, entrepreneurship, public policy, tell your colleagues, friends, associates, organizations about us. Um, there are many ways for people to get involved, uh, uh, in both in terms of activities as well as being a potential funder of CAE. Uh, we don't need a lot of money. As I said, we, we operate on a shoestring budget, but we do need to raise some uh, in order to survive. And any help uh, from the uh, broad community out there uh, would be greatly appreciated. So spread the word. All right, John. Well, I, I really thank you for your time today. Um, the work that you do inspires me and, and hopefully uh, for anyone who didn't know about it, it will inspire them as well. Uh, there's a there's a vast network of of support organizations for entrepreneurs. And I, I think that it's really critical that they all know the work that the Center for American Entrepreneurship is doing. Um, it really is the the vanguard for a lot of us to to enable us to do to do this work and i just wanted you to know that yeah personally i'm very grateful for for everything that you do to support the environment for us well likewise eric um i appreciate the work that you do i in in our relationship um i look forward to doing more work with you in 2021 um and uh, th th you know thanks for having me on today it's been great fun all right well thank you Thank you for listening to the Make Startups podcast. This episode was produced by me, David Bash, at Augusta Podcast Studio. This episode was recorded in Augusta, Georgia. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure you like, follow, subscribe, and tell a friend about the show. We will see you very soon.